Amen. Well, my name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church, and today we're going to be in the book of Luke. See, if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Luke chapter 15. It's in the New Testament, which if you have a paper Bible, and I think there may be one in the room, uh, you could just let it fall in half. That's Psalms. Pick up the one side, let it fall in half again, and you'll probably be in Matthew. Then you go Mark, Luke. So there you are, Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please do not panic. We'll have those words for you on the screen, and we'd encourage you to. If you have it on your phone or whatever, that's great. Just use that electronic device. Have it in a place you can find it so that later in the week, as God reminds you of some of this stuff, as I pray the Holy Spirit does, you would know where to go to look uh, and read about what he's doing. If you were with us last week, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, it's been a ticklish uh, sermon series. We've been talking about the concept of judgment. The way the Bible prohibits our judgment of others, the way that God is clearly a judge overall, including us. And last week, we kind of came to a point of how do we understand God's judgment of us, meaning specifically hell. We didn't come up with that. The Catholic Church didn't invent that in the 6th century or something. Jesus taught regularly about God's wrath poured out on our disobedience. A place where we would go after life, having rejected God, called hell. And last week we talked about the parable that he teaches about the rich man and Lazarus, and he teaches us something about the ethic of or the, the way of hell. And we confronted Jesus' very perceptive teaching that your heart chooses hell. Meaning, with C.S. Lewis, that the doors to hell are locked from the inside. The rich man tries to get a little bit of water. He tries to get Lazarus to come into hell, but he never actually asked to get out. Our hearts are running away from God and his mercy, which is wild. You can't imagine that. But, but the, the concept that a lot of us have of hell is that there's this big pit and God's up here in heaven looking down. It's on a cloud somehow. And he's looking down at this pit with fire coming up from the pit. And people are trying to get to heaven and they got their fingers on the ledge right here. And he's just joyfully kind of stomping on them. Ha 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 ha. You thought you could get to heaven. And watching as they go down to hell. And every now and again, a Peter or somebody will kind of sneak by on the side. But most of us don't make it. And God's happy about it. But that is not a clear picture either of us or of God. It's not a clear picture of us because biblically, and this is really the thing you can see most clearly in your life if you're trying to say, is the Bible true or not? Your heart chooses to find its security and its satisfaction in something other than God most of the time. Or if you're not a believer, all the time. For Jesus to say that the law is summed up in the command to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourselves, proves the lie that we sometimes believe that we're good. That God's pleased with our obedience. No, we're going after, we're choosing anything other than Him. We're choosing to love anything other than Him. And you go to the Old Testament, there's a very clear 
consistent analogy of God loving us like a husband loves a wife and yet us going out after other lovers. And I told the first service to read Ezekiel 16. I don't know. You've you got to like be ready for Ezekiel 16. You've got to get a good night's rest before you read Ezekiel 16. But if you choose to do it, uh, do it first just to yourself. Don't just start by reading it to your family. But that Ezekiel 16 chapter gives that same understanding. If I have gone out after many lovers, it's really not a clear picture to see me trying to run to heaven. I've been running away from it. It's not a clear picture of God because God is passionately pursuing us. Who do you think Jesus is? He's God come from heaven down to earth to experience not a very pleasant life and then a sinner's death to pursue you and me. So no, the finger stomping God is not accurate. Instead, we have chosen something other than him, even as he passionately pursues us. So if that's hell, what is heaven? Meaning, if that desire said, if that heart disposition is hell, is there something complementary in heaven that's reaching down to grab us, that's attracting us and pulling us up? I say, absolutely. But I want to think clearly about it in three ways. There's three questions I want to answer this morning about heaven. It's not just what is the experience of heaven, though we'll get to a part of that. But if I come back to him, how can God honorably take me back? And if you put it into the, the wayward or adulterous spouse, it's way more helpful to think about it. How can you honorably take that person back? How can he honorably forgive us? Two, how will he willingly accept us back? Even if there's some way in which he'll pay that debt, why would he want us back? Are you welcome when you come back? And thirdly, if I left in the first place, how long will I stay with him? How can I go back and how can I stay back? How can I know that I'm not just going to turn back again and go back to my other lovers? So let's ask this question from Luke chapter 15. This is another of Jesus's very powerful, very unique parables. Luke chapter 15, go down to verse 11. Jesus says, there's a man who had two sons and the younger of them was said to his father, father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me, meaning his inheritance. Father, I hate you. I want nothing more to do with you. I wish you were dead. Your only value to me is the inheritance that is coming to me. So let's just go ahead and skip the middle part. Divided up the property between them. And the younger son, not many days later, he gathers all that he has and he takes a journey into a far country. And there he squanders everything he had on reckless living. When he had spent Everything. A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who said to him, I'm sorry, who sent him to go into the fields to feed the pigs. And as this younger son was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. Whoa. That's a story. 
Jesus is telling this parable and he's telling it to a group of people who need to hear it. He's actually telling it to the Pharisees, which we can get into a lot more than we have time to do today. But He says to them this story about this younger son who leaves and how he spends all of his father's money in this other country. It goes on to tell the story that, that the son comes back home because he's longing to be fed by even the scraps that the pigs are eating. Nobody's given him anything. He's got no money left. The bars and the brothels were smart enough to make him pay on the front end, so he's got nothing left. Yet, he thinks, maybe I can go home. Dad, he's not going to consider me a son anymore, but maybe I can work for my dad, and he'll give me enough food to just not die. Now, what I want to think about first, when we ask this question of, can God honorably take me back? I want you to think about the concept of forgiveness. We've talked a little bit about it in this series. When you forgive somebody, or when I forgive you, or you forgive me, part of what you're doing is saying, I give up my right to punish you. What you're not saying is that that person just doesn't deserve punishment. Instead, you're taking that, that right, that desire, that just thing that they've earned, which is punishment, and you're just handing it up to another court. You're saying, I don't have jurisdiction here. God's the one who's in charge. And we talked about that early in the series. We said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So this is his job to do vengeance. It's my job to forgive and love. I'm going to hand over, and it's going to be awful, but I'm going to hand over that desire, that, that grudge, to see this other person hurt. I'm going to give that up and trust that God's going to take care of it. I'm going to pass it up. Now, when we think about forgiveness from God, though, we've got a problem. Because God is not able to hand that off to a higher court. If God's going to forgive us, he has to resolve the debt. He has to somehow pay so that justice is maintained even as mercy is given and love is restored. How can he do that? Well, we understand from the whole of Scripture that it's the cross. What is that found in this parable? It's the idea that the son who goes through and does all of that wild living does it with the father's money. In a sense, the father pays for it on the front end rather than the back, and there's other parables that maybe show this a little more clearly, but it is here that the father has to pay the debt of this son. If the son's going to come back home and not have, um, you know, a couple of big fellows in suits following, trying to break his legs to collect, he's got to have the debt paid. He paid for it. He paid for it with his dad's money. He paid for it on the front end, but he did pay for it. Jesus has to pay our debt if we're going to be forgiven by God. God's the just king of all things. He's the Lord over all things, and he's the ruler over all things. If justice is going to be maintained, he has to maintain it. And if he's going to forgive us, that debt has to be paid. Now, if you say to yourself, well, I'm a Christian, and I know that that payment was made through the cross. That's 101 in Christianity. That is the gospel. Well, fantastic. But how is your confidence level in that forgiveness on a day-to-day basis? Do you come to the Father with boldness, trusting that that's true? Or are you quick to run back to our Phariseeism? 
I'll just confess that a, a, a regular kind of feature of my thought and prayer towards God that I have to repent of all the time is that I'll come to him, I'll ask for something, and then I'll run through my head and try and do like a quick inventory of my obedience and disobedience. Is he going to respond to this? Is he going to say yes to this? Well, how good have I been today? And I start thinking about, all right, what, what do I feel guilty about and what do I feel proud of? And I stack those two things up against each other and hope that the proud of is bigger than the guilty for. No, no. God has paid my debt. He has made himself the one who has to pay my debt if I'm in Jesus. If I trusted Jesus to take my debt and to give me forgiveness, if my only hope in salvation is Jesus, then God has legally paid my debt. Romans 3, that he might be both the both just and the justifier of those who are found in Christ Jesus. He is just. I don't know why he made this deal. I don't know what drove him to bind himself to my case, but he has paid my debt. Meaning, if somebody now tries to send me to hell, they are being unjust. Why? Because my debt has been paid. Jesus can't pay it and I pay it. That would be unjust. Legally, I am free. And I don't know why God would do that. Why would he do that? Well, it's a love that I can't understand. But he has bound himself to take my debt. Do I trust that? Hebrews 6. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge in him, fled for refuge in that gospel message, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. How do you argue back against that guilt and shame? How do you tell yourself, no, that he really has taken me, he really does love me, he really has forgiven me? You can think through the legal implications of the cross. The debt has been paid. My debt has been paid. Therefore, God can accept me back. Now, will he? Does he want me back? If I forgave a son who did to me what I have done to God, I think I would have a very strong temptation to pay that debt and then cut all ties. All right, I helped you. We're square. Don't ever call me again. To be forgiven by a spouse that you commit adultery against and then to come back? Are you wanted? Surely this son felt the same thing. As he's coming home, he's running through in his head. Jesus tells us this parable. He's, he's running through in his head his argument before dad. Okay, if dad will even see me, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to tell him, no, I'm not going to be your son anymore. Maybe that'll shock him for a second. And then I can ask, please, if he'll just let me work and, and get the, the kind of rations that you give to the workmen. That's what he says in 18. He says, I will rise, go to my father. And I'm going to say to him, dad, I, I've sinned. I don't 
call me your son. I'm not worthy to be called your son, but treat me like a hired servant. So he goes to his dad. And you assume that the dad's going to treat him like the older brother. The older brother in this parable, the one who stayed home and did what his dad told him to do, hates that the younger son came back and hates even more the way that the father treats him. Because how does the father treat him? Verse 20. As the man arose and comes towards his father, uh, and came to his father. So he, he comes up from the pig pit and he's walking back to where he's from. And while he's still a long way off, his father, who is evidently looking a long way off to try and see the son returning, sees him, feels compassion, and then runs and embraces him and he kisses him. And the son said to the father, here's my speech, Lord, uh, father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And as he's starting to bank this pitch about being a hired servant, the father starts screaming. Servants, bring the best robe quickly. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Probably the signet ring, the family ring. Put a ring on his hand and let us and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You can't imagine why this father would like the son any longer. And yet, as the son comes around the corner, he runs to him. As the son is making his pitch to somehow work his way back into good graces, the father is yelling for everybody to come and quickly get the servants, get the best. Get what is given to the son. Apply it to him. And he's saying it through hugs and kisses on this dirty son. (laughs) Why is Jesus telling this parable? Why is this parable the parable we're telling when we're talking about heaven? Because that's heaven. That hug, that name, that party, that's heaven. Heaven is the father who is celebrating with such wild, gleeful joy over the son returning that he kills the fatted calf. We've talked about this before. I'll tell you it again. They didn't eat a lot of meat at the time. Animals were the livelihood. To kill a fat calf meant to give up what that calf would become one day. To kill the fat calf meant that you were having the most extravagant party that you could have. This is Gatsby-esque. This is everybody goes home with a Lexus. This is insane party. And he's throwing this party over that son. Why? Because Jesus is reaching to somehow communicate to us what it's like that God loves even his enemies. Not only does he love them, but he can make them back into his sons. Through what Jesus has done, he will willingly accept you back. He will. It says in Luke 6, when Jesus is telling the sort of the Luke version of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies, do good. Lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Why? Because you're going to be son like sons of the Most High. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. This is who God is. He's loving. And He accepts us back. I'll just tell you, it has been a very hard year to be your pastor. And I'm not saying that to an individual in this room. I'm just telling you. We've been doing this for almost six years now at Hope Church. I don't know that there's been a year with more prayer with more difficult conversations. 
And I had to ask myself, why do I do this? Or more to the point, because I've got good answers to that theologically. But more to the point, how do I continue to do this? And I answered myself because I thought there's kind of two possibilities. One is that I can just turn down my care or emotion towards you. I can just coldly execute. You ask questions, I'll try to give answers. It's Sunday morning, all right, time to preach. And I take the next sermon and I just lay it out there. And I harden my heart to you because it hurts to be sensitive towards you. Well, that won't work. I'm a clanging symbol at that point if I don't have love. The other idea, though, is to continue to love you and to feel hurt by you. And this isn't some poor, pitiful me moment. I'm just telling you personally that while that has to be the way forward, I just didn't understand how to continue in that. I didn't understand how I personally would have the endurance for that. And I'm trying to think through, okay, what's the right answer here? And while I'm thinking about it, a, a couple that I had been working with a lot, and it was all good stuff and a little bit hard, but mostly good. And, but it was a lot of time and it was a lot of effort and a lot of love. And I saw, for some reason, I saw an old Christmas card they had sent. And when I just saw the picture, I wasn't really thinking of them, just this picture came up, and I saw the picture, my heart filled with love towards these people. And in that experience, just that moment of feeling love, not conceptualizing love, but feeling love, it all clicked. It totally made sense. Love is its own justification. Love is so good. Love is so powerful. Love is so golden. It's straight from Him. God is love. Love is so filling that, of course, it's worth anything. I don't ask those questions about my kids because I actually love my kids. My problem with you is my problem. It's that I'm so hard-hearted. If I actually did really love you the way that I'm supposed to, that I'm called to, that I want to, then when I just see you, my heart will be so filled like God's heart is toward us that, of course, you take whatever punishment comes your way. 1 Corinthians 13, which is, this is the book. 1 and 2 Corinthians are the books where we learn to be pastors because as you're reading the way that Paul is interacting with this intransigent church, you're seeing the sort of body blows that are going back and forth between the, prophet, the apostle Paul and these people who are just rejecting his teaching left and right and they're dividing and they've got all kinds of weird sex stuff they're doing. And he's trying to bring them back into the gospel. And in all the wrestling that he's got from them and all the angst and pain that they are causing him, we find 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. You skip down to 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love. What makes ministry hard is not you. 
it's my inability or, or weakness in, finding that, feeling that, love. If I really felt it, and I, and I do, and it comes, and it comes in waves, and it's getting stronger, but if I really felt it, then I would get to feel heaven. Our conversation about hell is that hell is reaching up all the time and grabbing you to pull you down. It's always tempting you. Pixar movie, uh, Finding Nemo. They have an anglerfish. The anglerfish has got this little dangling light, and they're down in the darkness. They got nothing in there. And here's this weird kind of uh, iridescent sort of light, and they go to follow it, and they're looking at it. And then <laughs> you see the anglerfish. Do you have that picture? Can you show this picture real quick? Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, but that's the like cutie Pixar version of something that is even more horrifying when you see the real thing. Google anglerfish later today. The thing that's happening here is what happens in Proverbs when it says that this adulterous woman has smoother than oil words and honey on her lips and she's so attractive and she's calling to you. It's adulterous, but you want it. And yet when she grabs you, you find that her feet go down to death. Hell is reaching up all the time trying to get to you, but do you understand that heaven also is reaching down all the time trying to pull you up to it? Love all the time has got its fingers going out in and around in your world trying to grab you and soften you up a little bit and pull you to Him. He is showing His love to you all the time. And if you'll just see it, if you'll just plug into it, then you understand the third question, which is, how do I stay with Him? Yes, He'll receive me back. Praise God. Yes, He can receive me back. Praise God. How do I have any level of confidence that I want to go back or will stay back with him? Well, because it's pigs and pig pods over there. Okay, I chose it once. Now, we believe that if you're saved, if you have put your faith and confidence in Christ, you're always saved. You're always his. It's his job to keep you. But let me ask you, Christian, if... These moments, these experiences of love towards God, of putting your faith in Him and trusting Him for your security and your satisfaction, if they don't, wane. Often they do. It's because while you might feel it in the moment when Josh and Kelsey are up here and everybody's singing together and you're starting to feel and remember these gospel moments, by Monday afternoon, by Thursday, where's your heart? How am I going to stay with him? In Luke 7, we have this story about Jesus showing his love to a a prostitute. There's this big group of people. They're all having dinner together. And there's Pharisees leading the dinner. And Jesus is talking to them. And in walks this woman who is a prostitute. We don't have any understanding that Jesus has ever seen this lady or knows this lady. But somehow she understands that he can forgive her. So... Standing behind him at his feet, she weeps. And the weeping, the tears begin to wet his feet... And she wipes his feet with her hair and then kissed his feet and anointed them with this ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him in saw this, they said to himself, this man knew who this man was a prophet. He would have known who this woman is. What sort of woman is touching him? For she is a sinner. Now, Jesus, looking at the Pharisees, starts asking a question to Peter. Says Peter, this guy owes two, two servants owe their master. One five dollars, another five hundred. 
The master forgives the debt of both. Who loves the master more? And he's saying it while he's staring at the Pharisee. And Peter, and I imagine him off to the side. I don't really know where he was, but I imagine him like right here. Well, Jesus, I think probably the one who owed more, loves more. Peter, looking right at the Pharisee, says, bingo. That's exactly right. If you are forgiven much, you love much. Now, the point is that these stupid Pharisees didn't understand that they owed much. But you can see through that if you will right now understand that you have been forgiven much. If you can see that, then you can begin to love much. To truly, to really be His much. To feel that hug, that heaven right now that is reaching down to try and grab you and pull you to himself, saying all the time, I'm better and I love you and I want you. If you'll just come back, if you'll just experience this love, if you'll just feel what I have towards you, you'll just melt. And all these other sins and all these other temptations and all these other things that are hardening you and trying to drag you away and trying to pull you down to death will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Old Christians used to talk about how your head will control your stomach through your heart. What they meant was your rational self will be able to discipline, to self-control your appetites, your desires, represented by the belly, but maybe we could go further south and talking about the things that drive us. But those appetites, those desires are controlled by the rational mind when, by, through the heart, through your loves. If you love him, if you desire him, if you feel that love from him, then all of a sudden these other things, they grow strangely dim. My prayer is that you would be melted and receive that heaven now that you might fully receive that heaven one day. Now, through a glass darkly, through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we take your Lord's Supper right now, I just pray that we would remember what you've done, remember what it cost, remember the debt that you've forgiven, not so we can wallow, but so we can see the love that would do that. Having been forgiven much, Father, let us love much so that lord we experience heaven now and forever I pray these things in your son's holy name amen